I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast, friends. This is Theology Unplugged. We are, um, once again, in a different position than we normally are. That's right. We're not outside in the, the studio. studio. Yeah. It's fun to be outside the studio because we're just in the big area of the Credo House. What, what do we got here? A couple thousand square feet of just open space? It's, uh, yeah, 2,000, I think. We got, we're surrounded by a whole bunch of books and people and coffee shop stuff is going on and we're here with a scholar yeah yeah well uh, it is uh, great to have you guys we are in our different form as you have probably seen us in before where we uh, have a special scholar in it's our special converse with scholars broadcast and we have sitting at the table with us dr paul copan dr copan very nice to have you Thank you. Great to be with you guys. First time here and loving it. Yeah, well, yeah. the first time here, but not the first time on Converse with Scholars. You guys may remember a few years back. No, not a few years back. We had him a year ago talking about the same book. Uh, yeah. We have Is God a Moral Monster uh, broadcast where we didn't have him in studio, but we had him call in on Skype yeah. and had an interview with him. So we're pl plugging this through the Theology Unplugged, and we've got people in here. Those of you who are in here, and if you want to get closer or if you want to... Uh, listen from afar, that's fine. If you want to go on drinking your coffee, your lattes, your Luther lattes, your C.S. Lewis Irish cream triple shot latte, triple shot espresso with Monin Irish cream and steamed milk with micro bubbles. Steamed milk, right? Microphone. Microphone, yes. okay. 148 degrees or less. Well, the difference between a, a cappuccino and a latte has to do with the micro bubbles that you create and actually the chemistry that goes on yeah. inside of the milk. And, and the proteins some... and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's actually a very scientific process that we're learning all about. You know, and I'm proud of it. Yeah, I am too, you know. It's it, anything worth doing, I think is worth doing well and and there you have it. We're well, Paul has on had, Paul's had about 3 boosters since he's been here and a it's, booster. It's booster. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we we have a thing here at the Creedos anytime somebody says boosters, if somebody corrects them no matter what. Whether you okay. say it right or not, okay? Yeah, so don't say it or okay. you'll get corrected. <laughs> okay. But has had uh, 3 boosters, which is just the essentials, which is Martin Booster, just the essentials of a latte and you watched me go through the process of making it and you were thoroughly impressed I can as, tell. I was to totally engrossed uh, in the process and very impressed at the care that you give to the entire coffee making process. Uh, you know, whatever drink you're serving it's wonderful to see such uh, high quality here at the Credo House. Well the reason why you like that or, or some examples in your own life is that you like to cook, right? I do. I do. Tell us about some of your cooking stuff. Oh well um, like to you know, grill and uh, you know whatever wherever, wherever I get, wherever I can jump in to fix meals, prepare meals. We I, I do that. Uh, my uh, you know every Saturday morning we have chocolate chip pancakes or French toast, and so I'm regularly uh, that's just what we do at 9:30 in the morning at the, on Saturday mornings at the Copan House. Uh, so uh, so yeah, that's kind of our, our tradition, our routine, and uh, that's one thing that I enjoy doing a lot. Well, Tim, we're going to carry that routine over here to the Credo House tomorrow morning, right? Yeah, my my kids are very anti or they're very interested, and I am as well, to have these 
these uh, French toasts and pancakes, and we've uh, we some of this came up was that when we were at a conference in Tulsa <laughs> uh, with Dr. Copan, we we were uh, it was a whole big long story that I won't go into, but we were thinking that he was leading a young man to Christ because he was so focused and, and was taking notes, and the the young man was sitting there and was just totally engaged in what what Paul was talking about. And we got closer, assuming that he's saying, you know, so here you must put your trust in Christ. And he's saying, here you must add a little bit of cinnamon. (laughs) And we're like, what is he talking about? And he was giving them his recipe of French toast. And I got it all on video. We have it all on video. And it's really, really I mean, you couldn't have set anything up better than that. That was just like the best setup in the world. But here's the deal. I I love it. I love it. But I think sometimes when you read the books of somebody, and and especially if it's an academic book, and uh, I think sometimes you think that these aren't real people or these are just these ivory tower robots that aren't aren't in the front lines of, of just life and ministry and things like that and so so I think it's a it's endearing I think that uh, just saying this is a, a normal guy that God is blessed in in certain areas of his life that I think can be used to edify the church well Paul it is certainly good to have you here at the Credo house we've talked about it for a long time Thanks. we have interviewed you on many subjects we've talked on the phone quite a bit on on different things gone back through emails you were one of our I think you were our first uh, guest blogger then became a permanent uh, fixture on parchment and pen, uh, blogging ever since. I looked back the other day, and you've been blogging with us ever since 2007. So Boy, you... that's mind-bloggling. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, written on a lot of subjects. Paul, you are uh, very deeply, um, uh, not only in your thoughts, but also in your professional ministry, engrossed in philosophy, uh, Christian philosophy, including issues of apologetics, defending the faith, and uh, you teach uh, philosophy, you teach apologetics, you write quite a bit. Not only do you write blogs, but you also write a lot of books. I've got a lot of books in front of me. We'll probably be mentioning them here and there. But, you know, what I want to do is I want to spend the time. Next next week we'll talk about uh, your book, uh, Is God a Moral Monster, uh, specifically. And maybe uh, refer to some of your other books that I have here in front of me. But, you know, I've got a philosopher in front of me, and I've got an audience around around us here at the Credo House. And, you know, there, there are certain things that I've always thought, I just wish a philosopher was here so I could discuss this with them, you know, talk to them a little bit more about it. So I want to talk about some philo- philosophical issues. Okay, Sounds good. Um, I was just on my way here talking to a student of mine. You know, I teach theology, so we don't we, we have to always cross over into philosophy. But talking to a student of mine, I want to talk to you a little bit about free will. Okay. Okay. Not as a not as a Arminian and a Calvinist. I don't care about that stuff right now. I just want to talk okay. about it from a purely philosophical standpoint. Okay. This here's the conversation that we had just a little bit ago, not ten minutes ago. But his question was, how in the world? Did Adam and Eve sin in a position of neutrality? Now, free will, when we talk about free will, guys, we're talking, from a theological standpoint, you're talking about it as something that, um, that, that gives, us a, gives us accountability for our actions. I think we could all agree upon that. It gives us also reasoning for our actions because we say we choose things of our own volition. We talk about volition, free will choices that we make. We also talk about responsibility quite a bit, you know, and, and when we're living the Christian life, uh, mm-hmm. issues of guilt, issues of judgment, issues of the cross all come up based upon this whole assumption that there is freedom. Now, my, my whenever, I, whenever you get 
back behind the scenes and you get unplugged with me, that's some of the questions that I have that I just don't have answers for. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's I don't like I was telling this guy earlier. It's not a whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian. This is a difficult issue and a difficult subject. Mm-hmm. So I thought right then, this is what I want to talk to Paul about. I want to talk to about what free will is from the standpoint of issues pertaining to the garden, mm-hmm. uh, issues pertaining to our lives and our choices. Traditionally, Paul, whenever we talk about free will, sometimes we talk about it in the sense of the, the power to choose. Mm-hmm. That's the most general sense that I think Augustine would agree with and you know uh, the, the different uh, theological positions out there would agree with, just the power mm-hmm. to choose. We will all agree there. But we also have this issue that we have freedom to choose in a way that, that um, is not coerced from the outside. Mm-hmm. That, that nobody's forcing you to, you know, to do something. Otherwise, it's not free. But also, this is the this is the issue with me. One of you go back to the garden. How do we account for? Um, and his question was: Was Adam and Eve neutral in the garden? Were they neutral? Yeah. Well, uh, a couple of things. I I, I would argue that yes, uh, free will has to do with it being up to the agent. Uh, to uh, to choose that it is not some sort of you know, even uh, a, you know some internal states uh, some uh, you know maybe a certain frame of mind that simply compels me to act in a certain way um, or some external uh, pressure through environment or something like that that uh, that that prompts me to do what I do but it is up to the agent the buck stops with the agent uh, when it comes to uh, to exerting one's own uh, free will, one's own morally responsible uh, actions. So yes, it's uh, it's it's up to me rather than something uh, external uh, or even something internal that my internal states force me uh, to do uh, something, and I could not help doing what I I did. In fact, you know, First Corinthians uh, chapter ten uh, reminds us, you know, of this sort of a thing that uh, that temptation, you know, that we it's not a deterministic sort of thing that we you know when we have failed morally uh, we you know it says that God is with the temptation able to make a way of escape so that you might be able to bear it so it's not as though you know, when you, if you look back and say well I really blew that one uh, I did wrong uh, it's not as though somehow you're forced into it that you could not no it was up to you to make that decision that the, the blame rests squarely on you even though there are influences I'm not denying that at all so when it comes to the garden you know the the, the question is how could human beings, and again, I don't know if this is, it, it, let me know if I, I'm driving at the right angle because it could be approached from a couple of different, uh, in a couple of different ways, that the, you know, for, for one thing, was there, you know, when, when God says, uh, you know, that you, you know, in the day that you eat of it, you will die, um, that uh, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, how could they even know evil if they hadn't even experienced it? So that's one question that comes up, and I would I would respond to it by saying, well, no, they may not have known exactly what evil was, but that didn't mean that they did not have a moral obligation to trust the God who had created them and was caring for them. So they did have a moral duty to take God at his word rather than some strange influence uh, that shows up in the garden. Uh, so, so, so they are morally responsible, even if they don't know the full outworkings of, uh, of, of their choices or even what the concept of evil involves. Uh, they still do have an obligation to trust uh, in their creator and their provider. 
Now, another question that comes up along these lines, I don't know if that was where you wanted me to go, but uh, just to make sure I'm covering my bases, uh, you know, there's the issue of how could evil emerge in a very good environment? And that's often where people want to, to go with this uh, question, want to unpack it a little bit. And I think that as we ask that question, there are some people who have gone on, the tr on, on a certain track by saying, well, you know, one person so strongly you know, insists that you know, because God is the cause of everything, that, you know, that human beings were not the first, you know, were not responsible for um, bringing evil into the world. It wasn't the serpent or some agent, uh, however that's to be understood, or the environment. Um, you know, he calls God the culprit. God is the one who, quote, creates evil. And this, this is a Christian theologian. Um, and well, we've got a couple of those throughout history. I mean, Zwingli uh, suggested something like that. R.C. Sproul Jr. has suggested something like that. I wasn't like going to mention any names. <laughs> uh, Michael's all about it, man. No, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> all right. He, he yeah. doesn't mention names, uh, but I can mention them as long as they're in my camp. And, uh, <laughs> right. I, yeah. You can criticize your own camp. But, uh, we'll be friendly okay. about it. All right. Yeah, but, but okay. yeah. So, so, you know, I would say this, of course, leads to a great problem in that uh, the here the you have the source of goodness who is actually creating evil. Now, not, not, not that evil is... You know that he's acting in an evil way, but you know, R.C. Sproul Jr. Thanks for opening up the door. Uh, you know, does say that God actually um, created evil? Of course, uh, you know, deeply problematic here. You know, God you know, in the scriptures he created everything good. First uh, Timothy chapter uh, four, uh, James chapter one. Uh, that every good and perfect gift comes from God, and so forth. Um, so the question then becomes, uh, going back to you know, how could evil emerge? Uh, I would say that it ultimately is anchored in the misuse of the gift of free choice. That it is, you know, and I'm following Augustine here in his book on the freedom of, uh, uh, you know, on the free choice of the will, where he maintains that it is a move away from having God or seeing God as the ultimate good to focusing on lesser goods. So it doesn't mean that there's somehow evil, you know, God created something that was evil um, and that that was really the, the, the source of evil, but rather God creates agents who are capable of doing good and evil, but, but they, in a good world, uh, a very good world, they set their affections on a lesser good rather than on God. And so this becomes really the source of the problem that they become, you know, as you even read about uh, how Eve is fixated on the tree, that it's, you know, that it's, you know, she's, for one thing, distorting what God said about the fruit, you know, that she said you shouldn't even touch it lest you die. And also she seems enamored of this, uh, this tree that is able to make one wise, it's good for food, um, you know, it's appealing to the eyes. And so, so it seems that, you know, again, we're, we're seeing this in, in, a, in a kind of a telescoped form, what is going on in the Garden of Eden. But we see that there is this, uh, you know, it seems like a process of kind of building up to the point where they are, in a sense, primed to act on what has been building up. And so they turn away from God. But it has been this, you know, there's this uh, perhaps a gra what seems to be a gradual process that they've been kind of fixated on this thing where they have moved their affections away from God, uh, removing their focus from him to a lesser good, something that God created, but it becomes something that actually causes them, to, you know, this is something that, you know, that, that uh, attracts them, uh, becomes the focal point, and so they 
utilize, you know, they, they use their, the free choice of their will to shift their allegiance, to shift their focus to something that is a lesser good, and then they make a choice in light of that fixation that they have, that, uh, that, um, that um, you know, focus on this lesser good rather than on the ultimate good, which is really the root of idolatry. Now, I don't know if you want me to go any further, but feel free to jump in. No, and, you know, I mean, you're, I think you're, we're getting to the point where I'm wanting to get at, but I guess the question always is, is why did they choose it? You know, and I don't know that we have the answer for that. Right. But it's, but it's a question of why, where there was no inclinations that they were created with. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. I, I would agree that God did not create evil, mm-hmm. that they, he did not create them with some type of seed within them that would that would eventually birth this evil. But in a position of, and I don't know whether I would say that they were righteous either necessarily. Uh, They just had no, they weren't righteous in the sense of justified the way that we are and clothed in Christ's righteousness. Morally innocent perhaps. Yeah. And so in a sense, very neutral to where there was not an inclination one way or the other. And why in a state of affairs to where there is no inclination one way or the other, do they choose one thing or another? Well, I think it's, you know, I think what is going on is that there is a goal that they have in mind. So it's not a matter of um, what are the, you know, it's a difference of what philosophers call efficient causality and final causality. What we mean by efficient causality is that, you know, we're dealing with something that produces uh, an effect that, you know, if you, you know, like a billiard ball, you know, that, that, that uh, the pool cue strikes, uh, you know, you know the, uh, the ball, uh, that hits another ball that goes into the pocket. Well, the uh, you know what is the what what uh, a lot of people think about is is when they talk about dis- making decisions that it must be all of these cumulative um, uh, events or circumstances leading up to a certain point of decision, and therefore the decision seems to be inevitable given all of that backdrop. Whereas I think we need to think more in terms of what is the goal that they have in mind, what is their end game. Such that you know, for example, it might be thinking, well, if I do this, then um, then I will become like God, uh, and so it's not a matter of well, what what produced this, what kind of factor in their characters or in the environment or something that led them to do this. I think that kind of moves us away from you know the kind of free will idea that we that we're talking about that this somehow inevitably prompted them to do it, whereas it's in their own minds that this will cause this will bring me this. You know, receiving what I want will achieve for me a certain desired state uh, as a result, and so they they have a certain goal in mind that, and they believe that this is the uh, the thing that will ultimately bring them uh, what they are what they what they are ultimately desiring. But, but I wonder where the goal came from. Well, see, this is you know, and again, when you when you were saying, can you kind of break down for what the thought process was? And I again, that's something I, I'm not privy to, uh, and so, but but I think we can imagine in our own minds how this sort of a thing works. We can become so fixated on something that is less than God. It seems to preoccupy us. It seems to pull us away from uh, from our ultimate allegiance to God, that there are things that can slowly but surely um, move us, you know, like, you know, away from, the, as Paul said, the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. And, and I think that that's what we see happening there, that uh, even though we can't describe, well, what exactly was going on in their minds, um, we can, at least in our own experience, have an idea of what it means to get pulled away from the ultimate uh, good and focusing on lesser goods. But um, you and I are fallen, and you and I have bad examples. Well, sure, but I think we can, there can be some very neutral um, you know, there can be some very you know, seemingly neutral things, good things, things that are not 
bad in themselves, but they they gradually draw our you know that we are you know, our attention is drawn away from those things. They become a point of fixation. I mean, just think about you know God Himself when He points out this tree, and uh, rather than in a sense looking at all of these uh, you know, opportunities to enjoy the the fruit of the other trees, this becomes in a sense the focal point. Now, you know. You know, is that something that was inherent in human beings uh, to, to, in a sense, latch on to the prohibition and, and, and focus on that? I mean, I don't know what's going on, but I, I think that that's what indeed did happen, that, uh, that that is where their attention went, that that is where the focal point went, that this eventually, that fixation on a lesser good uh, became their, became, you know, led to their downfall. Uh, they're deviating away from seeing God as the ultimate, uh, the ultimate good. Hmm. Well, I won't, I won't push that one step further and talk about Satan and his free will. Oh, yeah. Where that well, came from. But, but something similar, you yeah. know, a, a lesser good um, uh, being pursued and that becoming, uh, you know, something that is good, um, becoming, in, in the end, idolatrous. Well, what yeah. an, but, but wouldn't we say, though, that because Adam and Eve have free will and because Satan had, has free will, that there is always, I mean, even though we don't know why they sinned, we are confident, though, that they had the ability. And so from day one, they had the, because they had free will from day one, from day one, they had the, the, the ability was there always. Like God at no time had robots that were following him. He always had people who could do actions that were away from him. Well, ultimately, I trust God. You know, whenever he yeah, says sure. that there's going to be a judgment, I understand that there's, it's not a farce. It's not something that's going up there and it's just, you know, people couldn't help but do these things and it's a fatalistic right. worldview. Right. So the judgment itself tells me that, you know, there's something more to it. But in the end, you know, whenever I'm talking about a, an antagonist that is coming towards Christianity, if I was to be antagonistic towards Christianity, this may be the road that I would take because I would say, I don't don't understand how I can be responsible as this whole thing has kind of spiraled down like the billiard balls being hit and it all started with this Adam and Eve and I don't understand why they did it but I'm held responsible ultimately for those things that uh, that uh, I have been inclined towards that I have this this inner drive this fallenness this this uh, uh, demic nature that has uh, compelled me in such a direction even though there is this idea of free will, you know, and of course that's where you come in and, you know, I don't know if anybody solves it in any theological spectrum you come into, but it's one of those philosophical issues that you deal with quite a bit with uh, freedom of the will and, mm-hmm. and uh, or in yeah. your, your field of study. Yeah. Well, I think a, a few things to be kept in mind here. Um, yes, we are born with a, you know, a self-centered propensity or tendency um, but I would argue that that itself does not um, condemn us uh, simply having that. I think what, what the issue is is acting on that, uh, aligning ourselves with that, agreeing with it, um, where we become uh, culpable. Uh, so, so, you, so you wouldn't <clears throat> agree that we have an imputation of Adam's sin that condemns us? No, I, I would not uh, agree with that. I you do, kind I, of go with the Eastern with, Orthodox Church yeah, on I would, that. I would, okay. yeah. That the, the da- there has been damage that is done through um, our ancestors' choice, um, but that uh, damage does not uh, entail uh, some sort of an imputation of guilt, mm-hmm. uh, which seems to run, in my estimation, you know, run counter to our... I think intuitive understanding of uh, of guilt and innocence, 
um, you know that uh, you know that you know, there may be consequences for what someone does, like a, a father who um, you know is on drugs and his children are affected. But but that doesn't hold the children, say, morally responsible for his drug use or something like that. So so there are consequences, and we certainly feel the impact of the consequences of what uh, what our ancestors did. But that doesn't thereby render us or impute guilt to us. Um, so that's the view I would take. Another thing to keep in mind is that uh, our own fallenness, our own self-centered tendencies, are not the last word here. Uh, I think the very you know, remember that we're we're talking about not only the first Adam here, but also the second Adam. You know that Jesus is one who rounds out the story. That he is the reminder that there is redemption and undoing of what our first uh, you know what what the first Adam did. And so what we are talking about here then is uh, you know, recognizing uh, what G.K. Chesterton said about you know, original sin, that of this self-centered tendency that we have. He, he called it uh, 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 you know, this fact as practical as potatoes, that we recognize that there is something flawed within, that there is something wrong within us. Uh, I think if we don't recognize that there's something flawed or problematic, uh, some moral deficiency or defect within us as we go throughout lives, then I think this is a matter of self, uh, you know, this is, you know, you know we are deluding ourselves. Uh, you know, we, we hold uh, other people to standards that we ourselves uh, don't, uh, you know, don't do, uh, that, we, you know, that we are easier on ourselves than we are on others and so forth. Uh, so we recognize in one way or another that there are standards that people ought to hold to. Um, and we recognize in, in our own selves that we fail to uphold those same standards that we often ho hold others to. But it's also a reminder of you know, the fact that there is failure that the fact that there is a moral gap reminds us of the fact that there is redemption beyond our failure. And so, so you know, we know where we are, where we ought to be, but the question is, how do we get there? And I think it, it is a reminder of extent, you know, reaching out to God for his grace, that we in ourselves uh, are, are in deep trouble because of our own you know, our own moral failure, our own need for forgiveness, our own need for coming to terms with, uh, with, with our broken identities. And therefore, uh, you know, Christ offers hope in the midst of our despair that we cannot live up to the kind of standards that we are uh, claiming for ourselves and claiming that others ought to hold to. Well, we're talking to Paul Copan, uh, author of many books, including uh, True for You, But Not for Me, How Do You Know You're Not Wrong? And you've got another one that's similar to this. Um, it's a three-book uh, series, that's right? That's just your interpretation. That's just your interpretation. And okay. the po another popular level one is uh, when God goes to Starbucks. When God goes to Starbucks. The same, okay. Uh, same, same genre. Um, Tim, how much time we got? I think we have about five minutes. About five minutes. All right. Um, another topic that I want to broach just for a minute for five minutes. Okay. <laughs> from a philosophical <laughs> standpoint, and I'm trying to introduce people to some of the the deeper elements of philosophy that you deal with on a daily basis, but also some, I want to say fringe, I would just say some kind of ones that people may have not thought of, you know, just like free will. But also you, you've written some, uh, especially on the blog. I'm not sure if you included any of this stuff in our in your books, but I know you've thought about this before, but this whole idea of the problem of God's hiddenness, mm -hmm. the hiddenness of God. Yeah. Can you speak on that just for a moment? Sure. Uh, Blaise Pascal, um, the noted uh, French philosopher and mathematician, died uh, you know, at a you know, fairly young age of uh, 38. He uh, said that uh, God is 
one who is willing to reveal himself to those who are seeking him, but makes himself obscure to those who seek him not. So when Pascal is speaking, he is highlighting, he was, by the way, one very much influenced by Augustine. He sounded more like the, um, uh, more like the reformers uh, than he did of you know, kind of the traditional Catholicism in which he had grown up. Um, and, uh, but, but anyway, Pascal was one who recognized that there is ample evidence for people who are seeking God, for people who are genuinely wanting to know if God exists, but for those who are, in a sense, insisting that God uh, follow their demands, uh, that they say, kind of fold their arms, figuratively speaking, and say, well, I'm not going to believe in God until he does X, Y, and Z. Well, Blaise Pascal said, well, for people who are insisting on that, you know, God is not interested in revealing himself. Uh, God is interested in revealing himself to those who humble themselves, who are not going to play games with God, who, you know, you see, you know, Pascal and others, people like Paul Moser, uh, who teaches at Loyola University of Chicago, you know, highlight the, the fact that if God is to be known, he is not, he does not want to be known as merely an intellectual idea, even something that makes sense of the universe, but he, he wants to be known as the cosmic authority, as the Lord of one's life. And so if I have this stance that I'm taking that I'm not going to believe in God until I, you know, have, you know, X, Y, and Z in order that, you know, that we're insisting that God meet my criteria, that is not evidence of a humble heart. That is not evidence of a heart that is in the right place so that God can actually reveal himself. So rather than saying I'm not going to believe in God until X, Y, and Z, uh, Blaise Pascal, you know, basically says, I ought to be willing to receive whatever glimmers of light that do exist. And a lot of times people have this, you know, and, and Pascal is one who uh, addresses this kind of a skepticism that you've got to have like 100% certainty before you believe. Uh, well, of course, um, you know, to insist on 100% certainty, you have to ask the question, uh, you know, how can I show with 100% certainty that 100% certainty is required for believing? None of us operates that way. Uh, I mean, it's logically possible that this could just be an illusion. And so what Pascal says is that God fashions the world in such a way that, you know, again, in honoring of human freedom, that for those who are unwilling to receive God, he leaves enough obscurity in the world so that people can latch onto that, and that can be, in a sense, their way out of believing in God, or they can, you know, you know, go or, you know, and God will give sufficient evidence, indeed abundant evidence, for those who are willing to submit themselves, first and foremost, not to him as an intellectual idea, but to him as the cosmic authority, as the Lord. So that area of divine hiddenness, I think, is a very helpful uh, category for us to consider because it does take into account human freedom, it does take into account, uh, you know, the nature of, you know, something of the resistance that there is to belief in God. That a lot of times belief in God can be uh, the result of, say, smoke screens that people are putting up. Uh, that, you know, I mean, I've talked to people, uh, you know, who are, you know, you can give them one answer after another. And it seems like no matter what kind of an answer you give them, they're always looking for a loophole 
so that they can, in a sense, escape from, out, from under that obligation to take God seriously or to humble themselves before God. And so, so, so I think it's important for us to keep in mind that kind of a, you know, that, that God is one who hides. Uh, God is not there to give us a divine pyrotechnic show uh, in order to entertain us. And Jesus himself rejected the, the call for signs and wonders. Jesus said a crooked and perverse generation seeks for signs. Why? Because this is basically allowing, you know, putting God in the position of having to, in a sense, prove himself or entertain us, or something like that, and then we could basically say, well, if, if, if that doesn't suit my liking, well, then I can just reject God. And so, so, so Jesus isn't willing to perform signs for those who are hard-hearted, those who are unwilling to, uh, to take Jesus' own claims and authority seriously. And so, so that whole category of divine hiddenness, uh, I think, deals with some of the, that kind of that, that murky area in between that, uh, that I think is really where, again, we coming to where we began, uh, where the issue of free will, uh, of moral responsibility, of the requirement of humbling ourselves before the creator of the universe, rather than assuming that we are in a position to be calling the shots. Um, when we talk about, I mean, uh, <laughs> whenever you talk about divine hiddenness, it's, it's something, yes, it, it's something that from a Christian worldview we explain. We say, well, why is the reason why God doesn't answer me, you know, whenever I talk to him why, mm-hmm. yeah. like you why, why can't we interview God for a theology unplugged broadcast type thing I mean it sounds like a silly question but a very practical one in the end but from a Christian worldview I mean you got Luke you got Paul you got Peter you've got um, you've got John mm-hmm. all of them affirming in some sense you know Luke uh, whenever Jesus goes up in heaven the angels say hey this guy will be back whenever mm-hmm. he comes back to, to finish redemption so it's mm-hmm. like he's gone for a while mm-hmm. there's a disappearing act uh, also, John uh, Peter, who says, um, um, the, the, you, you, even though you have not seen him, you love him. There is mm-hmm. an experiential breach that mm-hmm. we have from a vision, vision standpoint. I don't see Christ. I've never seen him. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that you can say, well, I've heard him, though. You know, I've, I've, I've smelled him. I've touched him, but I've never seen him. I think the whole idea is that there is just this breach within, embedded within the Christian worldview that you and I, will not see God in that sense. And that is part of his hiddenness. This is part of the absence of God for a time, even though I don't necessarily know how to explain it to other people and say, you know, this is exactly the reason why, because I'd love for him to show up in a different way. And yeah. that's, that's, the, that's the yearning I have for the second coming. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, let yeah, me just to quickly jump in uh, to, to mention that. I would, I would say, yes, we, you know, I mean, we do have those who... I think offer strong attestation for who Jesus is, who the historical Jesus is. Uh, you know, you see this remarkable testimony of those who are willing to give their lives for not what the, what is uh, you know what they uh, are fabricating, what they you know, but rather they are convinced that this is true. You now, people will die for a lie, but not you know when you've got the the disciples dying for what they you know would otherwise be you know uh, just you know. If seen as fabricators and so forth. I mean, if they were fabricating it, surely, uh, you know, many of them, if not all of them, uh, would have, uh, on pain of death, uh, recanted uh, their views. Um, but here you see these people who have nothing to gain, uh, everything to lose, uh, and yet they are, you know, laying down their lives boldly, uh, challenging the authorities and so forth. Uh, that this sort of a picture of, you know, of the disciples and how they're so bold, I mean, that, I think, you have eyewitness testimony 
that is, I think, quite powerful, quite remarkable that these, this kind of a transformed, these transformed lives as a result of the resurrection of Jesus, and even Jesus' own brothers who didn't believe in him, they end up believing, and they're with the first, they're with the disciples there before Pentecost. You know, what was it that brought about this kind of a transformation? Uh, and so you know, the resurrection of Jesus makes marvelous sense of that. We do have you know, evidence of the love of God and how he laid down his life for us. I mean, we do have the scriptures as a testimony. We have the internal witness of the spirit that, we, that the reality of Jesus Christ uh, within our own lives through the, through the working of the spirit, uh, even though we don't have a direct encounter, um, is still capable of bringing transformation, bringing an awareness of the presence of God, that we recognize that we belong to God as his children, which is what Romans 8 and uh, Galatians chapter 4 remind us, that we are, that we have the spirit and we are reminded that we are children of God. So there's that inner testimony or the inner witness of the spirit that that is also part of the evidential picture. Uh, so, you know, and again, not that God is absent from the world. I mentioned earlier that, uh, that even today, you know, Craig Keener, uh, in his book on miracles, and check out the first volume of it, uh, where he has documented miraculous, you know, you, know, uh, you know, he has documented miraculous claims of people who have been healed. He has the medical records, interviews with doctors and so forth, that people after prayer in the name of Jesus, uh, you know, the, the healing that they have, and the doctors, I mean, he's, he gives hundreds and hundreds of these examples, and he tells that he has, you know, you know, x-rays of before and after, and with prayer in between, and the doctors saying, this, the only way I can account for this is a miracle. So Craig Keener, noted New Testament scholar, uh, in his book with Baker Academic Miracles, I think is, a, again, a reminder that God is at work in this world, that there are traces of God uh, throughout the world, and there are some people who might dismiss this, but, uh, but here we've got you know, credible scholars. I mentioned uh, J.P. Moreland, another one in his book, The Kingdom Triangle, in the last chapter of his book, talking about these same sorts of things. So, we, you know, so it's not as though, you know, boy, Jesus came and it's been total silence ever since then, but we do have these reminders of God's activity in the world uh, and ones that we should take seriously. Well, we have been talking uh, to a philosopher and apologist, Paul Copan, and um, we have him as our special guest here for Theology Unplugged, the Converse with Scholars edition. Paul, we will uh, love to have you back next week and continue to talk about this and talk about uh, your book, Is God a Moral Monster? Tim, I didn't, we didn't let you get a word in hey, otherwise. I've been enjoying the show, All so right. uh, I have a good front row seat, so I'm thankful that Paul's here. Well, come back and join us next week.